As someone who loves cultural theology, I'm completely fascinated by ancient and modern myths and how those mythological stories serve as guiding stories for entire civilizations. Whether it's the ancient tales of Zeus and the Greek Olympian gods or the myths of virtuous superhuman heroes or laser sword wielding wizards that fill our comic book pages and big box office movie screens, I'm fascinated by what these stories reveal about our views on God, reality, what is good and evil, and what the telos of life is all about. So naturally, being a bit of a comic book nerd, I was really looking forward to the release of Zack Snyder's Justice League back in March. And there was one scene in particular that really caught my attention and afforded a profound insight into Western civilization's increasingly messy relationship with God and history. There are increasing hints in our cultural stories that the era of secularity is coming to an end. So let's talk today about gods, wizards, witches, and the end of secularity. My name is Paul Anleitner, and thanks for listening to Deep Talks, exploring theology and meaning-making. This podcast is made possible without advertisement because of the generous support of listeners just like you. If you're finding this podcast helpful, I invite you to stick around to the very end where I can tell you a bit more about how to get involved in the Deep Talks Patreon community. God is dead. The cries of his death reverberate throughout the world. His death awakens something far more sinister and destructive to fill the vacuum of power. Like Nietzsche, who could see that the rejection of the Christian story and the eventual rise of a post-Christian West would lead to unimaginable consequences, Zack Snyder uses the modern mythological superheroes of the DC Universe to invite the viewer to consider what rises to fill the vacuum of power that remains after the death of God the death of God, symbolically represented by the death of Superman. Of course, if you've seen the film, you know what rushes to fill the void isn't a better future or world. This has actually been the myth of secularity. If we can only get people to do away with these superstitious beliefs about God, we'll eventually get to this utopian future on our steady march of progress. In Snyder's Justice League, the symbolic death of God opens the door for an ancient, much more sinister and all-consuming tyrannical evil, the chief villain of all the DC narrative universe, Darkseid. Now, I'm not intending to do an essay on one movie here, so if you haven't seen it, don't worry. This is not a podcast that's just breaking down Zack Snyder's Justice League. I'm using it as one example, one illustration. And I hope as we continue on in this series to bring up other illustrations from our current contemporary cultural stories to show that there's some cracks in the secular myth appearing and people are seeing it. I'm bringing this particular movie up because there was one scene in the film that was of particular interest to me. If you've seen it, you probably know what I'm talking about already. It's a scene where Wonder Woman recounts to Batman this story of how the old gods defeated Darkseid long ago and kept him at bay. It's this really cool Lord of the Rings-esque scene. It's a flashback scene, and, and in this scene you have the old Greek gods, Zeus, Ares, and Artemis, and they are 
joined by massive armies of humans, Atlanteans, and Amazons, and they're all combining their forces together to stave off the young dark side who threatens not just the planet, but quite literally threatens all of reality in the DC universe. If you know anything about Greek mythology, you know that Zeus was the chief god of the Greek pantheon, the Greek pantheon known as the Olympian gods. Ares was one of his sons and the god of war, and Artemis was one of Zeus's most beloved daughters. She was a goddess of purity, nature, and hunting. Certainly, as we've talked about on numerous occasions before, many Greek philosophers, including Plato, believed that beyond the Olympian gods, there was one above all, the one, the good, or we could say the, the source or ultimate reality, if you prefer. And, and actually, interestingly enough, in our current comic book mythologies, the, the two biggest, most famous ones are, of course, DC Detective Comics, DC Comics, and Marvel Comics. In both of those universes, or even, I should say, multiverses, there is a one above all, um, something that transcends. Uh, in DC, it's beyond the source wall. But frankly, you, you hardly ever hear about this one above all in DC or Marvel. And that's actually pretty similar to the way that the Olympian gods consumed so much of the daily thoughts of Greek and eventually Roman people living in the, what we could say, spanning over essentially three millennia, was the Greco-Roman Empire. So much of that daily Greek, and again, eventually the Roman Empire, the life of the people living in those eras and in those cultural contexts, so much of their daily life was oriented around the stories of the Olympian gods, much more so than, you know, let's say Plato or Aristotle or Socrates' belief in there being one above all, or uh, Plotinus, you know, the, the founder of Neoplatonism. They're certainly really, really important figures, but you really need to understand that at the local, at the folk level, at the day-to-day -day level, it's the Olympian gods that are center of all of the arts. They're at the centerpiece of government, of holidays and feasts, of architecture and, and city planning. And all of this was so frequently structured around a particular god, a patron god. They were structured to pay homage to a god or multiple gods. And a of course, along with that god, there were the values that that god represented. Athens had Athena. What is Athena? Who, what did Athena represent? Athena represented wisdom. And you could see that embodied in the life of the Athenian people. In many ways, Athens was the, the center of culture in the Greek world, the center for philosophy and the arts. It was the center of wisdom. They deeply valued that, and they embodied that value in the Greek goddess Athena. Of course, she's situated, there was a, uh, an idol to her situated in the Parthenon, sitting high above the top of the, what we might say today is the skyline 
of the city of Athens. Sparta, Sparta had, many, many of you are probably familiar with at least some cursory knowledge of the Spartans, that militaristic, the, the warrior people, um, the, that oftentimes they didn't get along with the Athenians. Sparta had Ares, right? And Ares, again, I mentioned this, Ares was the god of war. Um, another city, uh, Delphi. Delphi had Apollo, who represented music and light. And, and Delphi is a really interesting city because Delphi famously had the oracles at the temple of Apollo. And this, is, this seems like such a foreign world to us in so many ways. I mean, throughout the, the Greco-Roman era, you had people, especially all the way up until uh, the Christianization of, of Rome, of the Roman Empire, which we are going to talk about because this is one of the primary focuses of this series. You had people from all over that world, the world at the time, that would come to consult the oracle at Delphi, situated in the temple of Apollo. They would, military generals would consult the oracle for the, the, their blessing on the outcome of a battle. Politicians would come. I mean, people from all over the world would come to seek the wisdom of the oracle at Delphi, looking for insights about the future as the oracle would like speak in these ecstatic tongues. And then there would essentially be, you know, some of you charismatics and Pentecostals will appreciate this, this language. There would be an interpreter of tongues, someone who acted essentially as the interpreting mediator between the oracle and the person that couldn't understand what the ecstatic tongues were saying coming from the oracle. The high priestess at this temple was actually called the Pythia. So that's P Y T H I A, the Pythia, uh, named in honor of the story in which Apollo, in the Greek myths, Apollo slayed a giant python at this very spot. Interestingly enough, in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 16, there is Luke records an incident in the city of Philippi where the slave girl had the spirit of Python, of Pythia. Now, most Bibles will translate it, that word as something like divinization, but if you look it up using your concordance, or if any of you use like, you know, if you're a pastor or a professor somewhere and you use like the Logos Bible software, you know, you'll, you'll see that that word there is um, Python, Pythia. So this girl had been going around probably in some sort of connection to the, uh, the temple of Apollo, probably in some sort of connection to that cult, that pagan cult there. Uh, and she was actually going around. Read this in Acts 16. It's a really weird scene to modern people for us to look back on. She started going around announcing, quote, These men are servants of the Most High God. Proclaim to you the way of salvation, end quote. Now, in the Greco-Roman world, it was not uncommon for girls to, at a young age, be identified as having a special python spirit, the Pythia spirit. This was the gift of being a seer. We might maybe be more comfortable with a word like the, a fortune teller. And it was not uncommon for girls at a young age to be identified with having the seeing gift and then to be 
sold as slaves because once they have this gift, a master, someone that, you know, if you can control this sort of girl with this gift uh, and make money off of it, there's a lot of money to be made. After all, again, we, we have to see right here that this girl is not saying something that's inaccurate. She's actually speaking the truth. And this is hard for us to wrap our minds around because, again, even as Christians, we often think, well, there's like kind of like two sides here. You've got the spirit of truth. You've got the Holy Spirit. And then you have these sort of demonic deceptions that are out there. But kind of the demonic deception stuff for many Christians is like, well, we say demonic, but we're, we kind of think the rest of this stuff is fake. You know, fortune tellers are fake. These these things, and that's because we inhabit the secular frame. And so I know that's not the case for many Christians that grow up in the developing world or outside of the Western world. They're more than comfortable with demonic possession, with all these spiritual phenomenon. But many of us who have grown up, especially like right here in the Midwest, you know, this offends Midwestern sensibilities to think about what we might call a spiritual domain actually being effective in this way. So this girl is a slave. She's being profited on by these people who probably bought her at a really young age, and they've been using her to make money. I mean, this, you know, this offends, if this offends your ethical sensibilities, I'm glad because I actually get the impression that, you know, while it says Paul was kind of frustrated and annoyed, I you know, from my vantage point, I, I would say that Paul's greater annoyance is probably seeing that this spirit, this Python spirit, is not actually being a blessing to this girl. Not only is it somehow, uh, even though it's speaking true things, tapping into something that may not be for her good, it certainly is not for her good that these slaveholders continue to profit off of this girl's gift. So he actually rebukes that Python, pithy, the Pythia spirit, that Python spirit, and uh, sets her free from that. And of course, the slaveholders, they get really upset that they lost their ability to profit off this girl. It's a really interesting scene. It seems so foreign to us. And yet, as I'm going to talk about later... I actually think we're going through a cultural shift where more and more people are actually becoming comfortable with these sorts of stories. The imminent frame of secularism is breaking down, and more people are open to being haunted. The secular myth is collapsing. But let's keep going, because this is actually, this is one of several interesting interactions between these new Christians and the pagan practitioners of the ancient Greco-Roman world. That we, and we can actually see several of these interactions in the book of Acts. So Paul commands this Python spirit, the Pythia spirit, to leave in Acts 16, which, by the way, again, was actually speaking the truth through this girl, okay? Then in Acts 17, he has his famous sermon on Mars Hill with the Athenian philosophers. And in that sermon, he positively affirms how religiously devout they are. And then he ends up taking lyrics from two poems of worship that were dedicated to Zeus 
and then applies them to the God revealed in Jesus Christ. It's quite a a controversial interaction Paul has with the philosophers here on Mars Hill. Okay, now if you're in Acts 17, maybe you've been thumbing through your Bible as you're listening, jump a couple chapters ahead to Acts 19, and now Paul is in Ephesus. He's giving philosophy and theology lectures in the Tyrannus Philosophy Hall, but he's also miraculously healing tons of people in the name of Jesus, which is, you know, not something we instantly associate with a wise philosopher who gives, you know, like a professor who gives lectures. You know, we don't, we don't see this even among our great theologians of the day. You don't see many of our Christian theologians you know, taking a break from giving a lecture on systematic theology to go out and do like a tent revival, right? That's, that's a bit foreign to us. But Paul here is doing both. I almost picture Paul, instead of being like just some sort of philosopher, or traveling missionary, you know, the people of Ephesus really see Paul as like a, like a wizard, like a Gandalf kind of wizard. He's wise and he's, in, he's been endowed with power. And, and the people are really, really blown away in Ephesus by this, this thing called the way that Paul and the other Christians are preaching, as in the way of Jesus. And what they end up doing is they start showing up and they start burning their sorcery scrolls. And, you know, some scholars actually suspect these sorcery scrolls might have even just been might even be considered like magic amulets that people would wear around their necks. It's a wild scene, right? People are realizing that there is something exclusive about the claims Paul is making, that, that there's an exclusivity to the truth. And they hear this, and they not only hear this, but they see the manifest power of God in the ministry of Paul. And they're like, we're going to burn our magic scrolls and amulets. <laughs> like, when was the last time that happened at your church, right? That's, that's just not something we are typically accustomed to here in the West. But again, if you talk to people in non-Western contexts, this sort of stuff is not altogether strange. Others, though, if we stay, let's stay here in Acts 19, There were others in Ephesus, like a blacksmith named Demetrius, Uh, and Demetrius was a blacksmith who was making a really good living designing idols of Ephesus' patron god Artemis, right? The same Artemis that we see in Zack Snyder's Justice League, right? So Demetrius is making a good living. Ephesus is an important hub. Uh, Artemis is their patron god. There are important feasts and festivals dedicated to Artemis, a massive temple, lots of idols. I mean, we can't even imagine the amount of idols and images that would fill temples and homes in the ancient uh, Greco-Roman world. And a guy like Demetrius, he sees this way of Jesus that Paul is preaching, and Paul is manifesting in miraculous ways, and he actually sees it as a threat to the very structure of their culture. Demetrius says this in Acts 19, quote, And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, 
but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship, end quote. These three scenes I mentioned from the book of Acts are a microcosm of the larger religious and historical tensions that continued to exist between the Christian story and the stories of the old gods for hundreds of years. On the one hand, the Christians who go around proclaiming Jesus is Lord, they are making abundantly clear that they believe that this God and this story should actually subsume the old gods and their guiding stories. And yet, it's also clear that the stories of the old gods were not completely devoid of truth, goodness, and beauty. If that was the case, Paul would never do something like incorporate a poem or two poems from Zeus, two worship songs to Zeus, if you will, in his sermon about the one true God, the Father of Jesus. And it's, it's really hard for us to understand how much of a threat this was. And there was this incredible tension between early Christians and the pagan way of, at this point, the Roman Empire. It's so hard for us to understand it because we can't really comprehend how integral the old gods were to every facet of life in the three millennia of the Greco-Roman rule up until their eventual overthrow in the fourth century, in those years that, that followed Emperor, Emperor Constantine's uh, conversion to Christianity. This is a completely fascinating and really, really insightful uh, work of history written by Edward J. Watts that focuses on this 4th century transition from the old gods of the pagan uh, and the pagan practices of the old Roman world and the Greco-Roman world into what ends up becoming a, a Christianized or Christendom Roman Empire. And the book is called The Final Pagan Generation, Rome's Unexpected Path to Christianity. Again, the author is Edward J. Watts. I highly recommend the book. You know, I, I don't know what his own religious personal convictions are. He's writing as a historian, commenting on the historical movement. But he writes this, and I think this gives us a really good insight and understanding into how saturated this ancient world was with gods and magic and the stories of the old gods, and, and how much this new god who comes claiming lordship would have been perceived as such a threat. So again, this comes from Edward J. Watts. Again, the book is called The Final Pagan Generation, Rome's Unexpected Path to Christianity. Quote, The Roman Empire was full of gods in 310. Their temples, statues, and images filled its cities, towns, farms, and wildernesses. Whether they willed it or not, people living within the empire regularly experienced the sight, sound, smell, and taste of the gods' celebration. Traditional divinities also dominated the spiritual space of the empire as figures whose presence could not be sensed, but whose actions many felt they could discern. 
Although such a situation seems quite foreign to the modern Western mind, people of the time saw this as an unremarkable reality that had existed for millennia. Later Romans could draw on a long history of living in a world like this, and they had developed ever more sophisticated technologies and techniques for interacting with the gods around them. The gods belonged to the empire's natural environment, and Romans had spent centuries learning how to make use of this vital resource. The religious infrastructure of the Roman Empire cannot be equated to the aqueducts, pipes, and fountains that enabled Romans to redirect the waters of rivers and streams into their cities and homes. But both systems attempted to channel in productive ways forces that could either sustain life or unleash immense destruction. Indeed, while a, while a water system dependent on aqueducts and pipes differed dramatically from a spiritual system dependent on temples and rituals, both also produced a sort of passive and unconscious acceptance of their necessity. Temples, statues, and festivals were so omnipresent that they mostly faded into the sensory background as a sort of white noise or ambient odor that lurked without much acknowledgement within the empire's physical space, end quote. Maybe the closest thing I can compare it to is how, in our current cultural moment, we are inundated and surrounded by advertisements. And there is a spiritual dimension to this that I'm going to talk about in a little bit, but we go throughout so much of our day with this sort of white noise, the constant white noise of advertisements. When we scroll through our phone, when we drive down the street, when we even see a bus, there's an advertisement on the city buses around us. There are advertisements wherever we go, and it's, it's so much of a, a part of our experience that it's, it's like what Watts said. It's a, it's a white noise or just an, an ambient odor that lurked without much acknowledgement within our own empire's physical space. We we, it's just always around us. But imagine what it would be like if we stopped having advertisements everywhere. I think we'd actually feel its absence. We would feel that something has changed. We'd become more aware of it via its absence. But even worse, or even more provocative, might be to consider a scenario in which there is a movement that threatens the continuation of ads and advertisements in our culture. How do you think that would be received? Probably not very well, because the whole system, television, movies, politics, every facet of business imaginable in our economy is built and functions and runs off of advertisements. So if you could somehow even imagine a situation where people are going around and, and you consider what they have to say to be a threat to the continued existence of advertisements, if you were in a position like Demetrius was, like Demetrius realized in Acts, uh, what was that, Acts 19, right? He realized that Jesus is Lord, that claim, he realized that it was a threat to his business. It was a threat to his idol-making business. And there's certainly, certainly so much truth to that. This is simultaneously a threat, and yet 
It's not intended to be entirely deconstructive. Paul actually sees God at work in the cultural myths of the Greco-Roman world. In fact, without many of the cultural values that descended from their guiding stories and provided the very structure of their civilization, there wouldn't have been things like safe passageway on Roman roads, or there wouldn't have been a nearly universal language in Greek all across the empire to communicate the story of Jesus with. So Paul, I think, recognizes he's a, he is positively benefiting from the, the structure, and the structure of civilization at this point doesn't exist without the pagan myths. As I talked about in the In Christ Alone series, there may not have been an explicit doctrine of Christ as the Logos even in John 1 if somehow God wasn't working to reveal himself to the Greek philosopher Heraclitus or the subsequent Stoic philosophers, those who actually first used the term and came up with a concept of the Logos in their own frame. John, we might say today, is appropriating that term. And so how, I mean, how devoid, how, what a huge theological absence it would be in our Christological understanding if we somehow didn't have this language of the Logos that John uses in chapter 1. And yet, even with that, we simultaneously have to acknowledge what John is pointing to in John 1. That the light of Christ, anywhere that there has been light, has been the pre-incarnate Christ, the Word, which did become flesh in Jesus Christ, working in the world to reveal the truth. There's no light in the world at any point, anywhere, that doesn't come from Christ, even whether even the Greek philosopher Heraclitus who uses, and maybe it was the first one that we know of, to, to devise or to somehow maybe even discover the concept of the Logos. The core of the Apostle Paul's argument in Romans 1 is that God has always been revealing himself to all people at all times, but that people sometimes settle for the lesser good and claim it as the highest good and then end up making an idol of it. This is dysfunctional worship, and it produces degrees of disorder and dysfunction in the world. Frame that concept in Romans 1. Frame that within the context of Paul's Mars Hill sermon in Acts 17. And what we might be able to do is we might be able to like paraphrase Paul as saying something along the lines of, hey, guys, you've been honestly searching, and some of you have even discovered true things, but you've misidentified the highest truth as belonging to Zeus instead of the one above all. And this becomes the mode of engagement for many Christians in the first few centuries of Christianity. Of course, you certainly had some church fathers like Tertullian, and Tertullian's probably the outlier in this, who felt that it was nothing but demons that had deceived the Greco-Roman world into believing in the old gods. But there were plenty of others like Justin Martyr who believed that God was at work in the Greco-Roman culture and specifically in philosophy, we might say like philosophical theism, 
and that God was at work in that culture in a manner that was similar to the way he was at work in Israel's culture. So here's the interesting thing from this scene in Zack Snyder's Justice League that I just found so fascinating. The way Snyder portrays this, I think it shows something, shows something about how our cultural moment is shifting. The way Zack Snyder tells this story, and it's, it's not necessarily something that you find in the source material explicitly, but the implications of this scene are that the old gods kept a far worse darkness at bay. Certainly, these old gods are flawed. In fact, Snyder even has Ares deal the final crushing blow to Darkseid, which is really interesting because in that first Wonder Woman movie, um, you know, the, the first one with Gal Gadot, I'm not talking about the old, um, you know, late 70s television show, um, Ares is actually the villain in that, in that movie, and it's the same actor. And this, this kind of highlights some of the significant flaws with the, myth, the myths of the old gods. If you're planning on somehow orienting what's good and trying to build the optimally functional civilization and community around these stories, the problem was is that these old gods were morally ambiguous at best. All right. I mean, it's a, this is a really fitting contrast that you have Ares, who is, you know, d- defeating Darkseid, a far worse symbolic evil than what Ares is. And yet Ares is also, you know, malevolent at times. And he interacts with Wonder Woman in a way that certainly is villainous. At the worst, the old gods of the Greco-Roman world frequently demonstrated a total absence of moral virtue. That's them at their worst. Zeus is frequently prone to vice, like seduction, and dare we even say rape. He can be paranoid. He can be irrationally punitive. And yet somehow, even though that worst part about him and his story, the stories of Zeus exist, we can still somehow see the Apostle Paul not simply dismissing all of the stories and people's beliefs about Zeus as being devoid of any value at all. Instead, he just points to there being another level of divinity beyond the stories of the flawed Olympian gods. He says there's something better. Was the one above all, the ground of being, I am that I am, Was God shining the light of revelation, which again, according to John 1, is Christ, to all people at all times? Yes. And yet part of the biblical story is that there are also other agentic forces, both human and spiritual, who have obscured the light. We can see that there were certainly malevolent deceptions in many of the world's pagan stories and practices. But as Karl Barth argues, You know, we can only see them as deceptions because we have Christ as a reference point. That was the centerpiece of of Karl Barth's Christological, Christological theology, his theology that said, you know, we don't even know what's true, good, and beautiful in general revelation without the special revelation of the light of Christ. And 
I don't like bifurcating the two, but I think Bart has a point. We know those stories. We can look back. We can even watch, again, symbolically watch a, a movie like the, the, these DC stories, and we can say, hey, wow, way to go. That's great. Um, you know, Ares staves off Darkseid, and yet we can also compare Ares to other heroes and go, boy, I'd much rather have this here. I'd much rather have Wonder Woman than Ares. I'd much rather have Superman than Ares, right? Now, obviously, is if any of you have any familiarity with church history, you know that as Christianity spread throughout the world, new Christians renounced many of the values and practices of their pagan past. And this is what actually led so many in positions of power in Rome to be legitimately concerned about how this new guiding story that was, that was spreading throughout the empire could actually destabilize their civilization's institutions, it could destabilize their cultural structures. And, and this, is, this is really a valid concern that they should have. Because if our guiding stories are undercut, there is a destabilizing effect on the entirety of our life and our being. Any of you that have gone through a crisis of faith, you know how that can make you feel like everything is disintegrating around you, your social groups, your family bonds, even the calendar that marks your days and your seasons break down in a crisis of faith. Do I really want to celebrate Christmas or Easter if I don't believe that story to be true? It affects your calendar and the way you measure time. Now, multiply that. If any of you have gone through that, multiply that on a massive societal scale, which is actually something I believe we've been experiencing in our culture here in America. You, mass, you magnify, or I should say, uh, multiply that sense and feeling on this massive societal scale, and all of the sudden, your cultural institutions begin to collapse. I think there's very little doubt that the character of Superman is morally superior to the character of Zeus. There's little doubt that the new God revealed in Jesus is morally superior to Zeus. Now, he's not actually a new God, but I'm saying he would have been perceived as a new God to those in the Roman culture, in the Gentile world. There's no doubt, though, as you compare the ethics, the morality, that Jesus is morally superior to Zeus, to Ares, to Artemis, and the like. But yet, when the way of Jesus spreads throughout the Roman Empire, it was a force of metanoia and reform, not intended to be chaotic deconstruction. The goal wasn't, let's undercut all of society. Let's burn the whole thing down. That's not the point. There certainly is a destructive element to Christianity in the way it interacts, interacts with pagan culture and society. And actually, when we get towards the end of the fourth century, Christians sadly actually start becoming more violent towards pagans. It's something that we can say is wrong. Um, they start destroying pagan um, shrines and temples. And there certainly can be a debate on the 
whether or not that's good or bad, or if there's a process that you could go about um, doing to maybe preserve historical sites, to preserve art, and yet not continue to promote those stories. I don't know. That's a conversation we're having in our culture right now, isn't it? About statues and monuments and how much of them do we preserve, even if they represent things we don't like or don't believe in anymore, and how much of them do we tear down? That's something going on. But the goal of the way of Jesus was metanoia, reform, and not chaotic deconstruction. Some of the ways that we can see how Christians were after reform, metanoia, and actually incorporation of the best things about the old pagan stories and the old cultural values that did have harmony with what's true, good, and beautiful, the revelation of Jesus Christ, is in how Christians frequently adopted pagan cultural symbols to tell the stories of Jesus very early on. One such symbol was that of the phoenix bird. The mythological phoenix was supposed to be, according you know, to the, the, the phoenix myths, was always in a cycle of regeneration. It was said that the bird could live hundreds of years, and when it died, a new phoenix would be reborn out of the remains of the old. And we can actually see very early on a lot of Christian art that incorporates the symbol of the phoenix. Christians also subsumed old pagan feasts and holidays. There's a lot of feasting, a lot of holy days <laughs> in, the, uh, in the old pagan world. And Christians subsumed some of those old pagan feasts and holidays, incorporating them into the story of the incarnate Son of God. Of course, Christmas was the way in which Christians could subsume the Sol Invictus holiday. This was a holiday that celebrated the unconquered sun god. And as part of this carnival and feast, people would exchange gifts. And Christians took that and uh, held on to what was good about it, the exchanging of gifts, the feasting. And instead, they transformed the story to be the story of the Son of God's birth. While the new God of the Christians did undercut many people's way of life, such as the owners of the slave girl who had the python spirit in Acts 16, or Demetrius the blacksmith who made idols to Artemis, the Christian story incorporated all that was true, good, and beautiful about their stories, but sought to eliminate all that was dark and dysfunctional. C.S. Lewis understood this and found ways of incorporating many of the ideas from ancient pagan mythologies into his Narnia and Space Trilogy series. Michael Ward, who is a noted C.S. Lewis scholar, he's a professor at Houston Baptist University, writes this about C.S. Lewis's views on the old gods. Quote, it was largely through his love of pagan mythology that Lewis himself became a Christian. And in his best-known writings, The Seven Chronicles of Narnia, he demonstrated very ingeniously how Christianity can incorporate and redeem pagan traditions. The immediate human cause of Lewis's Christian conversion in 1931 was a long nighttime conversation with two good friends, J.R.R. Tolkien and Hugo Dyson, on the subject of Christianity metaphor, and myth. Tolkien was a Catholic. Dyson was an Anglican. 
What had been holding him back from accepting Christianity was, he said in a final letter, quote, a difficulty in knowing what the doctrine meant. Tolkien and Dyson showed him that Christian doctrines are not the main thing about Christianity. Doctrines are translations into concepts and ideas of that which God has already expressed in, quote, a language more adequate, namely the actual incarnation, crucifixion, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, end quote. The primary language of Christianity is a lived language of an actual person being born, dying, and living again. When Lewis realized this, he began to understand what Christianity really meant, because he had been fascinated from childhood by stories of dying and rising gods. He'd always found these pagan stories to be, quote, profound and suggestive of meanings beyond my grasp, even though I could not say in cold prose what it meant, end quote. The difference between his attitude to the pagan myths and to the Christianity he rejected was that he did not try officiously to explain the pagan myths. These stories he saw to be fruitful in their own terms. They had to be accepted as saying something in their own way, not treated as a kind of allegory and translated into something less, something secondary, into mere doctrines. Doctrines are the product of analytical dissection, they recast the original equivocal historical material into abstract, less fully realized categories of meaning. In short, doctrines are not as richly meaningful as that which they are doctrines about. Lewis now understood that the essence of Christianity was the story recounted in the Gospels, rather than the commentary upon and explication of that story in the epistles and that the Christ story could be approached in a way similar to the way he approached pagan myths. Christianity is the true myth. In paganism, God expressed himself in an unfocused way through the images human imaginations deployed in order to tell stories about the world. The story of Christ is God myth, the story in which God directly expressed himself through a real historical life of a particular man in a particular time in a particular place. Jesus of Nazareth, crucified under Pontius Pilate outside Jerusalem, circa AD 33. Continuing on here, guys, with uh, what Michael Ward writes on C.S. Lewis, that there were certain similarities between pagan myths and the true myth did not lead Lewis to conclude, quote, so much the worse for Christianity, he explained in is theology poetry. It led him to conclude, quote, so much the better for paganism, end quote. Paganism contained a good deal of meaning that was realized, consummated, and perfected in Christ. The important thing to notice is the resemblance he observed between the Christian story and the stories of pagan Christs, as he called them. Since God is the Father of lights, James 1, 17, he is the father of, quote, natural lights as well as spiritual lights, end quote, as Lewis told the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. Even the flickering lights of paganism could be attributed ultimately to him. He now believed with his poetic hero, Edmund Spencer, as he put in Spencer's Images of Life, that, quote, divine wisdom spoke not only on the Mount of Olives, but also on Parnassus, end quote. 
You can read all of that piece from Michael Ward in the Institute for Sacred Architecture, volume 33. I'll provide a link in the description of this podcast. So again, maybe those old pagan stories, with whatever light they had in them, were keeping at bay a far more sinister, chaotic, nihilistic force of despair. Of course, I would rather have Jesus than Zeus, just as I'd rather have Superman to protect the planet instead of Zeus, Ares, or Artemis. But as Snyder's trilogy revealed about our cultural moment... We haven't been sure what to do with Superman or Jesus anymore. His values, his morals, they feel antiquated. And if there is a God, why is there all this evil, just as Luther inquires in Batman v Superman? So maybe we should kill this God too and move on. What happens then? Fast forward to the 19th century. The Christian story in Western civilization is on the precipice of breaking down. The West begins to head into its secular age. And that's where we'll pick up in part two of gods, wizards, witches, and the end of secularity. Thanks for listening to today's talk. If you're new around here, I usually sprinkle in a variety of either just lectures or having guests on for extended conversations and interviews about the intersection of theology in all of our efforts to find and make meaning in the world. This month marks the three-year anniversary of this podcast, and when I got it started, I honestly, I didn't really know what I was doing. <laughs> Wasn't sure if I was going to stick with it. I uh, just wanted to use this medium to do some things that I was already doing in person, have been doing for years in the classroom, and I thought, hey, you know what? Podcasting makes it easier for people. We don't have to be in the same place at the same time. Uh, you don't have to pay tuition dollars to come to my class, any of that stuff. So as I got into it, I really began to see the tremendous potential for this to be one alternative avenue for theological and philosophical education within a broad, historic Christian perspective. And I've so thoroughly enjoyed doing that over the past three years. I'm still short of my goal of getting 300 patrons to support this podcast. We have thousands of listeners uh, every week, every week that I am able to put this out. And I'd like to get to the point where I get, uh, I can set aside the time to do this weekly and then to expand into other video content as well. I want to keep giving this away for free without advertisement, but I do need your help in order to do that. Would you consider becoming a supporter on Patreon during this summer drive to get to 300 patrons right now? We're just above one third of that. We've been working on this goal for the last few years and it was an ambitious goal, but I think uh, I'm just so encouraged by the progress that I have seen, not just in the numbers of people, but the kinds of people that are participating and connecting in the Deep Talks Patreon community. Not only is it a place where you can support this podcast and make sure I can keep doing it, but it's also become a place where we have discussion forums, uh, where I offer monthly um, Zoom calls, group Zoom calls, or even one-on-one -on -one opportunities for discussion, whether we wanna talk about theology, philosophy, or you just wanna have someone else to process your, your questions with. I, I'm glad to do that as well. I also offer regular bonus Q&A episodes, charts, graphs, reading lists, 
all sorts of things that I think could be helpful to those of you that want to go deeper. So I hope you'll go over and check out my Patreon page. I provide a link in the description and then you can kind of weigh out. Uh, is this worth it? Is it worth supporting? I hope you find it being something worth supporting and um, you can see the different tiered rewards that are available there as well. Another way you can support this podcast is just by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. I don't need you to butter me up, but it does certainly help other people improve the algorithmic chances that someone who might be looking for a podcast like this would stumble across it. Uh, the more reviews and more ratings that have that podcasts have, it pushes up their um, the, the possibility of them being seen in search results. So that's that's really helpful too. Finally, I'd love to hear from you. Of course, we have a discussion forum on the Patreon uh, page for this particular episode. You can always message me there as well. You can also reach out to me on Twitter and on Instagram as well. Those are places, the social media accounts I'm a little bit more active on. Uh, so you can find me on there. I'll leave a link to my Twitter account in the description as well. Finally, I want to give an extra special thanks to those who have been supporting at the Theology 201 level or higher. It is people like Rob, Sam and Nicole, Sam P, Sarah R, Sean C, Peter, Paul Reese, Paul Spencer, Mike Thomas, Michael Peterson, Michael Hernstein, Michael Hawk, Luke H, Lola, Justin, JT, Josie, Johnny, John Michael, Dr. Jim, Elise, Eli, Carolyn Ruth, Carolyn Simpson, BJ, Anders, Jesse, and Clint. Thank you all for your support. I look forward to connecting with you guys. Hopefully you can jump on. Oh, I missed somebody. Sorry. Uh, Taylor S., Tim K., sorry if I missed you guys. Stephen M., Sean C., golly, did I miss you guys or did I include you? I'm so sorry if I missed you earlier. <laughs> I hope you guys can hop on this month's Patreon Zoom call. I've really enjoyed doing that together over the last few months. And uh, I look forward to hearing all of your feedback. Until next time, we'll talk again soon.